So one of the realities of this life, as I've been thinking about it this week, that we live is that we live in a world that is full of opposites. And not only that, we live in a world in which we come to understand things, oftentimes in terms of the opposite. I'll give you an example. We know, we understand, we appreciate the value, for example, of physical light. Why? Because we know what it is to stumble around in the dark, don't we? We get the perils of darkness. We know what it is to be bumping our shins into the furniture and groping our way through in the middle of the night or whatever to go somewhere. And it's like somebody hit the lights, please. And when they do, it's like, ha, ah, you know, and you take it for granted. Except when it's off. You know its value because you know the opposite. We know, we understand, we appreciate the value of that which is good. Why is that? Because we know that which is evil. We see and experience it all the time. Every time we turn on our television set, we see that which is evil. Even in a world that doesn't agree that evil exists, all the world rises up and goes, yeah, well, but that's evil. It does exist. And it exists out there, and it exists in here, and it exists in here. We've been victimized by it, and we have victimized ourselves and others with it. And in contradistinction to that, we look at the good, and the good looks so much greater, does it not? We know beauty because we know ugliness. We know virtue because we know vice and are shackled by it. And on and on and on and on the list goes. We live in a world full of opposites and in which we come to understand things oftentimes by means of their opposite. And God created this world. And He ordained that way of learning. And so then it's not uncommon when, you know, we come to God's Word as we did last week And we see God coming to us with two different opposites, typically in two different characters in the same story. And He's coming to us with these two different opposites so that we might appreciate the one that He's promoting and we might try to get rid of the one that He's demoting. In other words, He's coming to us with these opposites and He's saying, hey, here's what I want to engender in your heart, in your life. This is what I want by my Spirit in accordance with my Word and in community with my people to see you grow in as you're diminishing in this over here. And last week, as we continued our study of these books of First and Second Samuel, we came to Second Samuel chapter 6, and God did exactly that. He came to us with pride, which He's demoting, and humility that He's promoting. And He did it ironically. So, for example, He came to us with the character of David. David is a guy who, humanly speaking, if you've been with us in this story... Okay, listen, he has every reason in the world to be prideful. It is stunning, it is shocking, it is frankly supernatural that he isn't because since he was ordained and anointed to become the next king of Israel, get this, as a boy, like who can handle that as a boy? Everything this guy has touched, at least in the end, has turned to solid gold. It's unbelievable, it's like he cannot fail. Now he will a few chapters from now, but so far... Wow. It is a blaze of glory from the beginning. And most recently, what have we seen? We've seen that David has been now anointed to be the king over the entire nation of Israel. David then takes the capital city of Jerusalem. He conquers it militarily. Now, why is that significant? Because no one in the history of Israel, including names like Joshua, were able to do that. So David does then what nobody has been able to do. He's greater even than any of the other leaders or kings of Israel. It's proven. It's a fact. And then, in addition to that, he wipes out the Philistines, the same Philistines that had wiped out and killed the previous king and had wiped out and decimated Israel. This guy 
is on a roll. And humanly speaking, as you look at his life, you realize, my goodness, I mean, he has every reason in the world to be prideful. And yet God comes to us ironically with him and says, yeah, but he's the badge of humility. He's the example of humility. And we saw that last week too, because what did David do last week? He went and he took the ark of God, which is what? God's earthly throne. And with a celebration that encompassed the entirety of the nation, he brought it up into the city of David, into his new capital city. And why did he do that? He did it to send a message that whereas he may be the human king, okay, Israel has a divine king. And that Israel is to worship and serve, ultimately, the divine king of Israel. He's saying, hey, guys, if you're wondering why I have the Midas touch, okay, it's real simple. It's because he has given it to me remarkable. Now, when you're studying through the Bible and you're learning about these things, do you ever stop and go, hey, by the way, if if I have the Midas touch, it's because He has given it to me. Because that's true for you too. It really is. I mean, if you are financially successful, let me explain to you just kind of in a nutshell real quick why because God has made you so. That's it. You're like, no, 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 I worked hard for that. I studied hard for that. I stayed up later than everybody else. I've been taking more risks than everyone else. I've been, you know, doing this and doing that. I'm not going to lie, Tom. I'm a little brighter than, you know, most folks, and and I have more talent, and I'm extraordinary. Just stop for a second. Where did all that come from? Where? From whom? Who gives you every breath that you take? Who gives you every beat of your heart? And have you ever considered that there are people out there who are far poorer than you, who work far harder than you, like a single mom with three kids and three jobs, for example? And there are people far poorer than you who will remain so, that are brighter, that are more gifted, that are more talented, that are more capable. It's all grace, guys. It really is. So don't let it make you prideful is the point. David didn't. Let it make you humble as you really let that settle into your heart. If you have a great marriage, okay, don't let that make you prideful. If you have wonderful kids, like everybody rises up and goes, man, your kids are like amazing. You know, don't go, yes, they are. (laughs) Seriously. Look into your own heart and evaluate yourself honestly. Listen, you know this, and God knows this. You don't deserve it. You're not the manufacturer of it. That's not to say you don't have a role or you're unimportant. That's not the point. The point is that it's all grace. It's the work of God in you. It's the work of God in them. If you have a great name, let me tell you, you're going to see in this story we look at today, who makes, that's the word, I will make for you a great name. It's something made and manufactured and not by me and not by you and not by the media and not by our peer group and It's made and fashioned by the Lord, and it is given to you as a gift. It is altogether and entirely grace, and it ought to make all of us humble, and it ought to drive all of us to worship. That's what it did for David last week. That's the second badge of humility that we saw. So as he's bringing the ark of the Lord up into the city of David, what was he doing? Well, according to his wife, at least, he was acting the fool, was he not? in front of everyone whose opinion could have possibly mattered to him in the world. He's the brand new king. This is a politically sensitive moment. 
He dances before the Lord with all of his might, violating, I think we have to say, the standards of modesty of his day, which were pretty significant. But you get the point in his dancing, in his leaping, in his jumping, in his shouting. He debases himself. He worships the Lord as if no one but the Lord is present. How do you worship him? No matter how it is that he may call you to express it. It's humility. It's remarkable. So anyway, then last week in David, we get this picture, ironically, (laughs) of humility because, well, he had every reason to be proud, but he recognized that since it's all grace, it's all of God, it's all a gift, it made him humble. See, God's promoting that. But then in Michal, David's wife, who ironically had every reason in the world to be humble, if you think about it, We saw the picture of pridefulness. As she condescends, she looks down upon David, not just physically, but in her heart. And she's humiliated by his worship. And what did the Lord do? It's how the story closed. He brought her low in judgment. So then what will God do now for David? If he brings the proud low, he exalts the humble. And he teaches us, and we'll see this in the story, that we have a humble king. Our God is a humble God. We're going to see an example of that, an illustration of it in the story today. We have a humble king in Jesus, and here's what Jesus does. He exalts his humble servants, and he doesn't hide that reality from us. He champions it. He says as much in Matthew 23, Verses 11 and 12, he says, the greatest among you shall be your what? Because whatever the answer is, it's like the road to greatness. There's a place called greatness. I think we'd all be interested in getting there. Okay, there's a road, it has a name, and it's not self-effort. It's just not. The greatest among you shall be your ruler, governor, president. Look, you may end up holding one of those titles. But the greatest among you It's an upside-down economy, the economy of God. The greatest among you shall be your servant. There it is. That's the emblem of humility. So the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself in this life will make the papers, maybe. That's the ethic of the world. Exalt yourself, exalt yourself, exalt yourself, exalt yourself, exalt yourself. It's a competition. It's a dog-eat-dog world. You know, look out for number one, don't step in number two. You know the deal. All the axioms. The ethic is pervasive. It's in here and out there, and God's trying to remove it from in here. That's the point. He's coming to us with a different ethic, an ethic from another world, and an ethic that values that other world and what will happen in that other world more than it does this world. And he's saying, live here so as to be great there, and sometimes even great here as God may ordain it. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself in this life will be humble, not might be, probably will be. I think there's a good chance that they're going to Whoever exalts himself in this life will be humbled, either in this life or in the next, and sometimes in both. And whoever humbles himself in this life, who lives as the servant of the Lord, who patterns his life after the life of Christ, the servant who humbled himself, and who is God, incidentally, 
Whoever humbles himself in this life will be exalted. If not in this life, then without question in the end, it's a will be. And if you think about it, it's the next life that we're to live for. I mean, would you rather be a big deal in this life for a couple of minutes, because typically that's all you're going to get. Here's your 15 minutes of fame. Make it good. Would you rather be a big deal in this life or in the eternal kingdom of your eternal king? Whose newspaper headlines are you most concerned with? Think about that as we work through the story today. We pick up our study today in 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, where we read this. Now when, now what is that? It's a word of time. Now when the king lived in his house, so sometime after David has built his fabulous, we have to say, palace in the city of David, and then sometime also after the Lord had given him rest from all of his what? Surrounding enemies. So he's talking geographically, saying, here's the nation of Israel, and they are surrounded by enemies, and God gave David rest via military victory after military victory after military victory against all of these surrounding enemies. Where is that recorded for us? I think it's recorded in the next chapter, chapter 8. So after David builds his fabulous palace, after the Lord has ushered in this season of rest, David has this aha moment, and it's a moment in which he is struck by a few opposites. Notice what he says. The king said to Nathan the prophet, see now I dwell where? In a house of cedar. That is almost certainly a reference to the kind of custom-made, imported from Lebanon, cedar paneling that David would have paneled the interior of his otherwise stone palace with. And it is a statement of great wealth. It is a statement of great luxury. It is a statement of great opulence. It's a big deal. But David is all of a sudden looking at this big deal. And remember, David understands where the big deal came from. Hey, man, it's all grace. And he's comparing it with its opposite. So what would be, in terms of habitation, the opposite of an opulent palace? It it would be a tent, would it not? And where is the ark of the Lord living? It's residing in a tent. It's very humble, is it not? So the divine king of Israel, without whom there is no Israel or David or peace or rest or anything else, is in a tent while David is in a palace, and he sees that, and he's struck by it. And he says to Nathan, see, now I dwell in a house of cedar, and the ark of God dwells, well, in the opposite of, an ark, uh, of a house of cedar, which is a tent. All right, well, that's not like a little factoid about the story, again, that we're just supposed to learn. It's a reality that we're supposed to interact with as we do our personal worship throughout the week in these same passages. Like we're supposed to get to something like that and think to ourselves, hey, you know, have I ever had a moment like that where I kind of looked at, okay, here, God has given all of it to me, right? So like, here's what I'm doing with it for me, and then here's what I'm doing with it for God, and like David, I am stricken in my conscience. You ever had that moment? Because again, God comes to us with a different ethic. It's an ethic from another world. It's certainly not the ethic of this world. The ethic of generosity of the Bible is very, very different from the ethic of generosity that you're going to hear, frankly, anywhere else. The God who gives everything to us in Christ comes to us and says, well, by the way, I also give you everything else. And here's the problem. Your soul pridefully can attach to it so very easily. 
And you can begin to think that, you know what, I earned this, I deserved this, and hey, God, thank you very much, but this all belongs to me. And how does that then show up? Well, if the Spirit is operating in your heart in a moment like this, it shows up with you going, wow, there's a big disparity here between what God calls me to do in worship with this and what I'm doing. Or you can say, hey, you know what, Lord, I'm so glad that I'm your son or daughter, and that's great, and that's my identity and everything, but this is really my identity. I've manufactured it for myself. Everybody agrees that I'm really awesome and a big deal because... So I'm going to hang on to it myself. Or you can say, you know what, here's what security is for me. It's, it's this, and this is my security, and he's going to address all this stuff in this story. But you've got to look at the ethic of the generosity of the Bible in which God, for the good of our souls, says, all right, I give you 100%, you give me 10 And by the way, the rest is mine too. So every once in a while, I'm going to come and say, you know what, you're getting ready to buy a new car. Here's the deal. Don't trade the one in that you've got. You can afford to just buy the new car. There's a single mom in your community who needs a car desperately. Incidentally, she has three kids and three jobs. And that car of yours, that'll last her 10 years. Give it to her. Hey, you know what? I've given you this amazing house. I don't know. Maybe you've got cedar or something. I don't know. Whatever. It's awesome. It's great. You've got the gift of hospitality. We need you to host a community group. It's all you, man. Do it. David looks at the house that he's in, and he looks at the tent of the Lord, the humble tent. And he says, my goodness. This needs to change. And Nathan apparently agrees with him, for we then read that Nathan says to the king, go, he's he's jacked about this. He's not used to this kind of conversation. Go and do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you, and God is with David. But he's not with David in this idea. He's not. And so Nathan now has to come back and eat his words, because what happens next is we read, but that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, go and tell my what, because here's that word again. It's the roadway to greatness. It's the emblem of humility. Go and tell my servant, David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? And now listen to this statement of humility because this is the humility of God, not David, and it's far greater. He says, I have not lived in a house since the day that I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this very day, but instead I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. And so what is God describing? What kind of existence has God describing here? And that has he been living? A nomadic existence. He's living in a tent and he's moving from place to 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 place. And why is that? Because this is where we see the humility. It's because for most of this time, He's been the God of a nomadic people who have been moving from place to 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 place. And here's the deal. The heart of Almighty God is to dwell in the midst of His people. And so if that means that He has to live in a tent to do that, not a problem. There's no ego in Him that goes, you know what, that's ridiculous. It's pretty remarkable. He says, I have not lived in a house since the day that I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this very day, but instead, I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling in all of the places where I have moved, and here we go, in order to be with, that's the idea, all the people of Israel, that's his heart. Did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? He does it, and he does it without complaint. And it's no mistake that when you get to the New Testament... 
when you get to the Gospel of John, you open it up to chapter 1. What does John tell us? He says that in the person of Jesus Christ, Almighty God himself tabernacled. That's a significant word. Why? Because it is a direct reference to the tent of the Lord during his wilderness wanderings. Jesus, who is Almighty God, tabernacled among us in the tent of his body, and oh, what humility he showed. I mean, the Son of God, the King of the universe, guys, born a peasant slave of the Roman Empire, a Galilean Jew who would have been looked down upon even by his own Jewish people, who was then slandered and ridiculed and betrayed and unjustly charged, tried, convicted, tortured, and crucified. And to what end? For what purpose? Why did he do this? That he might by his Spirit live in you. And that someday in the life that we're all actually supposed to live in light of, the one that in the end is not a blink of an eye, that would be this one, but the one that in the end never ends, he might dwell in our midst forever. That is the heart of our God and of our King. I mean, look at the way that Paul sums it up in Philippians chapter 2, and notice that he sums up the life of Christ and his humility and his service in the form of a challenge. He doesn't just come to us and go, you know what, let me sum this up for you, blah, 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 blah. He comes to us and says, I want you to be just like this. He says, have this mind among yourselves. There's your challenge. Have this mindset. Are you ready? Which is yours in Christ Jesus. Okay, you're not going to get it anywhere else. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God and thus personally enjoyed all of those benefits, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be held on to, but who instead emptied himself. He let go of it. How? By taking the form, here it is, of a servant. Feeling a theme here. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he, uh uh-oh, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And what does God do for the humble? He exalts them. Therefore, Paul says, God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. In every realm is the idea, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Guys, we have a humble king, and he exalts his humble servants, which is what he does for David now. So in verse 8, the Lord says to David, Now, therefore, to Nathan, now, therefore, thus you, Nathan, shall say to my servant, uh uh-oh, there it is again, David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, do you remember that? That you should be prince over all my people Israel. What has he taken you from? Because it's all grace. It's remarkable. And I have been with you wherever you went. That struck me. And and I say that because, man, for weeks and weeks, we studied through what amounted to, what, maybe a decade worth of the life of David in which he tried to eke out an existence in the wilderness, in which he was literally fleeing for his life with his band of not-so-merry men 
racing from King Saul, who has had a superior force and was ever trying to put them all to death. Despairing times, difficult times, lonely times. Read the Psalms. This man knows what that's like, times where I'm sure he wondered if God was with him. Maybe you wonder that at times. Seems to be in those moments that we wonder it most profoundly. What is the Lord saying? I have been with you wherever you went and whether you realized it or not. And what did David learn, incidentally, in those seasons? Humility, humble dependence on God, who if he didn't come through, it was a life and death thing. I have been with you wherever you went, and I've cut off all of your enemies from before you, and I will make for you something that I alone can make, which is a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth, which is the same promise that he made to Abraham, and Abraham, too, was called the servant of the Lord. It's unusual, actually, in the Bible. Abraham, Moses, Joshua, David, and the servant of the Lord who is spoken of as the suffering servant in Isaiah. Who else? Something. I will make a great name for you. And you have to admit that he did. He has, has he not? I mean, think about the reality that, I mean, David governed over a kingdom, yes, and it's Israel, yes, and we're all impressed with that until you actually go there. It's not that big. It's really not. It's not that glorious in the way that maybe the world would describe glory. There were kings with far greater names in David's day. There were kings with far greater empires in David's day, much bigger tracts of land, far more soldiers and horses and wealth and all of the things that the world glorifies. There were kings who made the pages. David's like on page 50 or something, you know, of the world headlines in those days. Okay, how many of those other kings can you name? And like, I mean, you'd have to admit if you did, it would be kind of odd, right? Like we'd all go, wow, how did you know that? David, we know, and not just us. Everyone all over the world, there is a sense in which the greatness of a name can only truly come through attachment to the great God, the one of the greatest name, who is Christ. I mean, consider even the New Testament. We see all of these different characters, all of these different kings in the reign of Caesar Augustus and so forth. I mean, you know, we read about the Roman emperors and all of these people that, okay, yeah, maybe we would know if we studied Roman history and all that stuff, but they're famous. Why? Because their stories are attached to Christ. Look, in the end, that's the only fame that will endure. Those of us whose stories are attached to Christ, whose stories are enfolded into what He's doing. Otherwise, we're flash in the pan, here today, gone tomorrow, nobody remembers us. The tide rolls in and the tide rolls out, and like a bunch of sandcastles, it just wipes us out, and then the next generation is built. And the tide rolls in and the tide rolls out, and all those castles are gone, and then the next generation is built. An enduring name comes from attaching oneself to the only enduring one. And so God says to David, I, I will make for you something that only I can make, a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth, and I will appoint for my people Israel another Abrahamic promise, a place. And I'll plant them in the ground of this promised place so that they may then dwell in their own place and what? Be disturbed no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly 
from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And so then where does security come from? It's from the Lord. The kind of security that we chase after with our lives here in this world and seek to attain for ourselves is very fickle to begin with. It's fleeting. That's true too. It doesn't typically save us from the perils that we're hoping that it will, and it certainly will not save us from the ultimate peril, which is judgment before the Lord. And there, there is only one way to safety, and that is by humble reliance upon Jesus. That's it. Who lived and died and rose again that we might be free of sin and death. So then he says, and I will give you rest. There's another thing, something we're all looking for. I'll give you rest from all your enemies. It comes from God. And then God, in grace, looks beyond David's life. And he says, oh, just so you know, I'm going to bless you here on earth as well as in heaven. After your life is over, he says at the second part of verse 11, moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Now, what kind of a house is he going to make for David? I mean, David already has a palace with cedar-lined walls. Gee, thanks, God, but, you know, I was thinking maybe something else, you know. I've got that part. Thank you. You've provided it. That's not what he's talking about. The house of the Lord consists not of blocks and mortar. It consists of people. Keep that in mind. Think in those categories. The Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. You wanted to build him one? Yeah, that'll happen eventually, but he's going to build you one. And when your days are fulfilled and you lie down in death with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring. It's not what it says. It says, I will raise up your seed, singular, after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, and he will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom for how long? For forever. So who then is God talking about? Because it can't just be Solomon, who is indeed born of David's line, and who does in fact build a house of brick and mortar for the Lord, a temple. But his kingdom does not endure forever. He's looking beyond just Solomon, and he's speaking of the eternal king who is Jesus as well. And he says, I will be a father to him, you see, and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity or, in the case of Jesus, as opposed to Solomon, when he bears our iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever through the true Son of David, who is Christ. And what is the house that is eternal that he's building? It's his church. It's those who humbly claim him in faith. So then it says, in accordance with all, the, all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. And how did David respond? Well, if you did your personal worship and you, you worked through it, you know that David finally, that was it. His ego couldn't take it, and he got all puffed up, right? Because, hey, look, who else in history has received this? Anybody? <laughs> He's humbled by it. He recognizes that it's all grace, and he leaves his lofty palace And he goes to the humble tent of his humble king. And in humility, he sits before it. And he prays a long prayer of gratitude. And in which he humbly confesses that, okay, everything I am and everything I ever will be, it's grace. 
It's a gift. Everything I have or ever will have, Lord, it is all from you. And in which he references himself in relation to the Lord ten times as your servant. It's amazing. Remember your servant. Do this for your servant. Your servant will do this. Your servant this. Your servant that. Lord, do you get the point? Your servant, your servant, your servant. Okay, it's only nine. I'm going to say it again. Your servant. David understands his place, even though humanly speaking, wow. Who would you compare him to? Do we know our place? Because we have a humble king who exalts his humble servants and who is himself the very model of humility and the very essence of servanthood and who comes to us yet again today with two different opposites, humility that he is promoting and pridefulness that he wants to cut out of our hearts and out of our lives. And so I'm going to ask you two questions and I'm done. Number one, which of those two words, humility or pride, best describes you? Best describes you in your home, in your marriage, with your kids or with your parents? Which is it? Best describes you where you work. Best describes you in your school, with your friendships. Best describes you in your finances. Best describes you. Which is it? And then secondly, what is it about your life that makes you proud that in reality ought to make you humble? Because as you really consider it, you realize, wow, it's a gift. It's all grace. So work that over, okay? Let's pray. Father, we thank you ultimately for the gift of Jesus um, in whom we find all things. We thank you for the one uh, who loved, for the one who gave, for the humble God who came into our existence and humbled himself that he might dwell with us In His humiliation and humility, Lord, He endured the suffering and the judgment that we deserve, that we might, through faith in Him, be free of it and receive instead the wonder and the glory that He deserves, that we might share in that with Him forever. Lord, let us sense His Spirit in our presence, in our midst. God, dwell among us. And Lord, let us live for the world that you're creating, for the other world, and let us live for it in this world, that this world might see that there are greater things coming. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.